Jeff is right, it's a sizable text. It is. It's, there's a lot to cover. In fact, it's, it's one complete unit, but it's one of those texts that just list a bunch of final thoughts that the Apostle Paul wants to give. Kind of like when you're dropping your kid off at camp and you're throwing all these reminders to them or the to-do list that you're checking. So here the Apostle does that with the church. And he lists several things. There are at least five that I want to mention that, that, that are covered. And we're only going to look at one of them today. For example, we could have focused in on verse 3. The theme of have understanding toward non-Christians. That would have done us a lot of good. It would have reminded us that we too were once foolish, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. What a good reminder it would be for us to remember as we engage in the world and minister to people in it. Or we could have focused on verses 4 and 7. My summary would be, don't, for, don't ever forget God's goodness and grace toward you. We, we could have just paused and sat on that and reflected on the beauty of the gospel that we've received and the mercy of Christ toward us. That would have been a rich time of reflection here in these verses. Or we could have honed in on verse 8, a major theme in this letter, a big concern of the Apostle Paul's elsewhere as well that we put our faith to good works. More than that, that we don't just simply believe something, we live it out. We act those things out. Paul's very concerned that we make sure to connect faith to real life. It's not just about knowing something, it's about doing something. And those are, those are real concerns in the Christianity of our day. Those are massive concerns. I was with Trinity students on Thursday night for this class I've been teaching this semester, and we spent time in James chapter 2, where James specifically says, if you remember that this text, that faith without works is dead. And you could just see the look on their faces, because rightly these students don't want to say that somehow our faith is, is, is requiring works, right? We, we were really good at pushing against that. But this particular text is not trying to not deny that at all, not deny that we need to believe in Jesus Christ by faith, but that ultimately that faith is living and active. It shows itself. Paul's very concerned about that, and we should be too. Or we could have looked at verses 9 to 11 that warns us, as almost every passage or every book of Paul's writings do, to avoid false teachers and false teachings. But we could have taken... As Jeff rightly said, this sizable text and really spent the rest of the calendar year focusing on it. And maybe we should have. In the least, I would say for yourselves to wrestle with verses 3 through 11, discuss them in, over breakfast tomorrow or during the week, talk about them with your small group. These are things that are worth wrestling with. We simply can't on a Sunday morning cover everything because the purpose is not just information but transformation. And I wanted to focus on verses 1 and 2. And I don't think the issue, hear this, I don't think the issue in verses 1 and 2 is interpretation. I think the challenge of verses 1 and 2 is application. Like that's where it's difficult. And so I felt that we needed to actually, before we could even move to verses 3 and following, just to do justice to verses 1 and 2, we actually needed to pause and reflect, look at our own situation and try to say, Lord, what does this look like for us? 
to apply this text to our lives. Well, before we look at this particular text and, and wrestle with it, let me pray and ask the Lord to minister through his word to us today. Father, we come to you. We ask for you to be gracious to your children by opening our eyes to the truth of your word. Help us to grasp it. And Father, we ask that not merely that we would intellectually understand what it says, but that we'd be formed by it. That more than our minds, but our wills would be transformed. That we would see and that by your Spirit we could do the good works that you've called us to do in relation to these verses. So Father, as we've prayed regularly, open our eyes that we may see the wondrous things of your law. And Father, as our King, that we would obey them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul starts with the word remind, which assumes there in verse 1, assumes that he's either spoken about this before or it's some level of common knowledge. But then he says things that are easier said than done. And to be honest with you, are even difficult to know how to live out, especially in the complexity of our day and age. Remind them, Paul says to Pastor Titus, to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. And then he gives a list of traits, symptoms of what this might look like. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Boy, that word perfect sure makes it problematic, doesn't it? Because a little bit of general courtesy, that's doable. The moment you say perfect courtesy, you've put a load on us. I don't think there's anything super complex here. Paul's assuming there's a basic knowledge of this already or that it's been instructed prior. We can assume from the rest of Scripture, and even specifically from Paul's own letters, that he has in mind, what's being reminded here is this theology of common grace regarding rulers and authorities. That rulers are literally put in place by God. The Scriptures say that. That he's the one that ordains. He gives a people rulers for their common good and flourishing. And in many ways, the same God also allows them to be in place for our own judgment. Rulers, therefore, are fulfilling their God-ordained duties. Now, he uses two words. He uses the word be submissive, and that's actually the weaker of the two words. The stronger word in the original Greek is obedient. And that, that's the kind of word that would be of a servant to a king. That's, a, that's strong. So two strong words are given there. Be submissive. Be obedient to them. The point seems to be that Christians should be exemplary subjects. Think of, these, think of this for a second. Exemplary subjects of the common grace leaders of human government. That, that we should be showing Christ 
our confidence in him, our faith in him, our true allegiance and primary allegiance to him as king and Lord, not just savior, but our king and Lord, in the way we engage with these God-ordained leaders that are in front of us. And not only that, but it's more than just a obedience to what their laws say, but that we're actually ready to participate. End of verse 1. We're ready to do good work. We're going to join in the pursuit of human flourishing, the common good of all people. And even just in our attitudes, we're not going to speak evil of anybody. Try that. Not a harsh word, whether you voted for them or not. How you doing? Not a little side comment or rip little slander in some way or another. No quarreling over it. How about the end of verse 2? To be gentle, not riled up and angry, as if we think that the God-ordained leader is in some way claiming something that God himself has no control over. Or how about perfect courtesy toward all people? What does that look like? Do we speak that way? Do we talk about our leaders that way? Or do we giggle and laugh every time we see a little sign that says, let's go, Brandon? What would Paul say to that? Or Pritzker sucks. Sorry, kids, I used the S word. Do we put that sign in our yard? I'm just asking, is, is that speaking evil of no one? Is that gentleness? Is that courtesy? Or do we look like this no different than the guy right next to us with whom we absolutely agree politically, but we totally disagree theologically? How can that be? How can we absolutely agree with somebody politically and totally disagree theologically, and yet we look just like them? Again, I don't think the difficulty of verses 1 and 2 is understanding. I don't think anybody would walk out of here and say, I really am confused what the word gentle means. Like, I think, they, I think we all get that. I think the difficulty of these verses is actually application. How do you do that? And that's where I think preaching or the sermon has a different role than a lecture. Like, a lecture, just generally speaking, is kind of information. It's delivering of information for accumulation of knowledge. But, a, but, but the purpose of the sermon, of us gathering together and focusing on this text together in our families and in our small groups, is actually not information, but transformation. That we believe that the Spirit of God would form in us in a certain way. So we never just want to kind of sit here and say, hey, I, I, I learned some new information, or that was really helpful. I want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that renewing of our minds is not an intellectual thing in and of itself. It's actually a spiritual reality. Only God can do. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in London from the last century, used to literally rebuke his people if he saw them taking notes in a sermon. Because he was convinced that the notes to be taken were the notes on the heart. And that only the Spirit could take those notes. So he literally wanted his people to sit without overly busying the mind so that their hearts and souls could be receiving the bulk of the message. So again, I looked at verses 1 and 2. 
And there's so many other things to cover in verses 3 to 11. We could have, and it could have been just a wonderful little information session. But man, after the last 18 months, it sure makes me think that we need some help in verses 1 and 2. How have we done in verses 1 and 2 in 2020 and 2021? If you were to grade your Christian brothers and sisters in general, or our particular church, or this region, or maybe even just your own family and yourself. How do you think we've done? How different do we look than people who have no hope in Christ, no presence of the Spirit in their life? Like, do we look that different? Even with disagreement over how to obey COVID and what to do with masks and vaccinations, I get it. It is totally complex. There's a ton of different approaches, and there's actually biblical freedom on a lot of different sides. Fair enough. But even with disagreement on specific practices, have our words and attitudes honored Christ? Have they? Do they reflect verses 1 and 2? See, that's why I wanted to focus on this text, this issue. Not again its interpretation, but its, its application. And I believe that we need help to see the difficulty of interpreting this passage in our culture today. Like, if, we're, if we don't get help, we actually won't even see that there has been some discipling or catechizing happening to us that we may have been missing all along. Came home from church on Sunday last week, and it was a little chilly in our house because the furnace decided it was no longer going to work. One of our kids was home, not feeling well, and had texted at some point, it's getting cold in here. I mean, have you gotten up to check anything? Just putting on more blankets, no worries. I'm not worried just about you. Did you, check the, did you check the heater? Is it working? Found out that we needed a new board. Very glad for warranties. But it was weird experience when, without having some kind of immediate, no alarms went off. It's not like sirens rang. Something was broken that needed to be fixed. But the symptom was a very slow and gentle dropping in temperature that you didn't even notice until it got kind of cold. But it's not like when it went from whatever degree to the next one down that you're like, that's a massive change. Something's wrong. Like you won't even feel it. It's only when there was a several degrees of change in temperature that you began to feel what's going on, something must be broken. Well, there's been a slow change in temperature in our culture. That's what Miss Vera was talking about when she was talking to the kids. Not the culture in the church, but the culture in the world. There's been a slow change of temperature, so to speak, for about half a century. And it's been so slow that it's kind of hard to see. But if you take a closer look, or maybe if you step back, and take a peek, you can see what we're talking about. And I want to explain that to you before we go back to this text to hear what it has to say. There's two points I want to make that explain what we're living in now. The fact that there's a broken aspect to our culture and our world that you and I are living in. The first is this, and this is a very, I think, helpful and important category, like lenses to look at the world in which we live in and work. It's this, we are currently living in a third world culture. Now, when I say third world, second world, first world, you think like first or second, third world 
country. That's not what I'm talking about. Third world country would be based on something like economic and military power. That's not what I'm talking about. The key word is not country, but culture. We are living in a third world culture. That is one that does not base itself on something sacred or transcendent. Now, let, let me explain, and there's been some research to kind of explain what our secular age is, and so I'm borrowing from a few people and I'm summarizing it for us, but I, I think it's helpful. When you look at human history over the last couple millennia, you can see that there's actually been three different cultures that were established. Early on, we were, the world was a first world culture. And they believed in gods and higher powers, almost to an extreme, clearly in an unbiblical way, where everything had some god or spirit or power to it that had to be appeased. Augustine, in his book from centuries ago, The City of God, talks just about these things, where literally every farmer is offering sacrifices for the harvest, and everyone who lives by a river is offering sacrifices so their kids can swim and not drown, and everything's connected to some God and deity, and as Augustine writes in the fifth century, they have no idea that there's one God over all things. But that's because in a first world culture or a pagan culture, that was the way the world worked. This is pre-science, pre-everything. Everyone was, everything was connected to a deity. But what's important to note in the first world culture and significant is because of that, this idea of the otherness or the gods or what was sacred or the big T word transcendent directed their lives. Transcendent just means other and beyond. Like everyone aligned their lives to the gods. That's just how you lived. There were, there were no atheists in a first world culture. They just didn't exist. Everybody believed in something about the, the higher powers. They might have not known who the right God was, but they believed in them. Even Paul, in the book of Acts, notices that in one of their shrines, it says, to an unknown God. They were so scared of not honoring the gods that they would have little shrines to gods they may have forgotten about so that none would be offended. But notice, in that world, morality, practice, governings, behavior, family, everything is in correlation to a higher power. Then it moved at some point to a second world culture where it was still transcendent, but it went away from many, many gods to one God. And you see this in the cultures of the Islamic faith, the Jewish faith, and of course, the Christian faith where there was still this transcendence, this focus on the other, there was a moral, sacred order. All things were in unity with such practices, but it was now not the many gods of the Greek gods of paganism, but it was the one God, specifically in Christianity, Jesus Christ. That is no more. It hasn't been for about 50 years. We are now in what is called a third world culture, and in contrast to the transcendent, other beyond, it's now imminent, internal, something we must decide for ourselves. There's no social or moral order by which this is based. There's no revelation from above. There's no authoritative book that gives direction. Again, for you and me, still living in a second world culture, oh yes, there is. But for the culture at large, does the Bible have any say? Did the Supreme Court have some interesting conversations this week about abortion? Is there, are there any questions about what God would say about this? Like, are there any questions? 
Like, why did they just invite a pastor to come in and say, hey, no problem. I got most of this figured out. Life is a big deal. It actually doesn't belong to any of us. That belongs to God. So here's the Bible. You're good to go. Do a little Bible study. You'll figure this out in a couple minutes. Well, what would happen if we just said, we're going to base our decision on the Bible? That would work great in Geneva when Calvin was pastoring. That wouldn't work right now in D.C. Because the difference between Geneva when Calvin was pastoring was that was a second world culture where they wanted to align themselves to God. But God has no say now. God has no place. There's no social or moral order on the sacred. The culture with no sacred order has the almost impossible impossible task of justifying itself only by reference to itself. It must kind of look inwardly to figure out what do we want to do? What is right and what is good? How do we define life? Who else would have ever thought until the last century or so that we would define life and not God? Like the question would be hilarious for almost every human existing up until now. What do you mean? We don't get to define what life is. Like, we're part of that. Like, God defines what life is. Yeah, that makes total sense in the second world culture, but not a third world. Charles Taylor calls the third world cultural approach, he calls it an imminent frame. He wrote the standard textbook, you could say, on third world culture. It's literally called the secular age. If you want to read it, great. Just get, it's something comparable to swimming laps in drying cement. It was that difficult of a read. But that's because I think he's trying to help us see things that are really hard to see. But when he talks about this imminent frame, he says, in a third world culture, the world is all there is. Like there's no deferring to God. There's no authoritative revelation from the outside. It's like we're just kind of all alone. So moral discourse cannot justify or root its authority in anything beyond itself. Like for the Christian, that doesn't even make sense. Like I have no moral authority. God has authority. I I don't have any revelatory thoughts. God's word does. I I base my life, my world, everything on this book. A clear symptom of this third world culture is the topic of abortion. Where personhood becomes something natural, not sacred. One important thing to note, and I think this gives us a glimpse into the world that we've been living in, all three cultures can exist simultaneously in the same society. That means you and I can be living in a second world culture approach, but living in a world that is functioning as a third world culture. And now you should see, boy, will there be some differences between people and some strong opinions. And an absolute contrast of Worldviews. The end result of a third world culture, by the way, is anti-culture. What a third world culture does is it looks at a second world culture that establishes revelation, ultimate moral authority, the connection between creator and creation, and it tries to pick away at everything so that there's no connection. So everything will be attacked. Church will be attacked. Religion will be attacked. The body will be attacked. Babies, abortion, right? Family, marriage, you name it. Any second 
world culture institution will be torpedoed by a third world culture. That's exactly what we've seen over the last 50 years. So now you're thinking, wait a second, it has been kind of getting cold in my house. Maybe my furnace is broken too. Well, yes, it has been getting kind of cold in this culture because for 50 years, there has been a virus of a third world culture attacking any remnant of second world culture until it is non-existent. Now, before you get too scared, let me tell you about our brothers and sisters who happen to live in this place called China. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we prayed for the persecuted church, and you saw literally one pastor talking about video cameras in the sanctuary seeing so the government could see who was coming into their churches. And you can say something like, well, man, I'm glad that's not happening here. Thank God for freedom in America. And there's truth in that. Or maybe what we have in the western part of the world, in Europe. Well, think of this stat for a second. When you think of Europe, where do you think they are Christianly? I mean, we're talking Europe like Geneva, where Calvin was pastoring. Where literally you would go to jail for bad doctrine. Not just bad behavior. Or where the Reformation started, where the gospel just took root. Or literally where, at one point in time, now centuries ago, more missionaries were leaving Europe than there were actually Christians in other, other particular countries. Well, that is totally reversed. Listen to this stat. As of, as of now, there are now more Christians in China than all of European countries combined. How's our country doing? China has literally, under the things that we would be fighting the most strongly against politically, it is literally thriving Christianly. They, they, they can't even handle all the new converts and baptisms that are happening in certain regions of that country. Do you think that's a place where religious liberty exists welcomely and it's all because of the political freedom that they have? The second important to know, point to know about this third world culture reality to gauge why the temperature is dropping in our house, since God made humanity to be meaning-making beings, like he made us to be meaning-making. He, he, he made us to be grounded in and desiring something transcendent, that means that all people will devote, that's a good word, all people, I don't care if they're Christians or non-Christians, they will all devote their lives to some grand story and some higher purpose. Like All of them will. Like It is not a question how someone's devotional life is. Everybody has a devotional life. Everybody loves something, worships something, adores it, aims and directs their life according to it. Everybody does. The question only is, is it Jesus or is it something else? Is it, is it financial success? Is it my family? Is it my career? Is it physical pleasure? Is it power? You name it. Every, the most secular person, whoever that would be, and whatever that all might mean to you, whoever that is, they have just as a devout devotional life as you do. In fact, they may even be more devoted than you are. It just would have nothing to do with reading our daily bread in the morning at breakfast or anything to do with the people of God and Scripture. 
What that means then is in a third world culture, that doesn't just go away. It's not like that focus on God, aligning ourselves to God, just, well, there's no God anymore, so now I just, I'm, you do your thing, I do my thing. It's actually quite the opposite. Devotion still is there. It's amped up. It's, it's in them. God made creatures to know the creator. He wired you this way. So you will be looking for something to be fully devoted to. But values now change. In a third world culture, values, rather than glory of God, the mission of the church, honoring and serving the king becomes, will this make me happy? The therapeutic value. How can I find myself? The psychological value. And all of us have seen how those values have creeped into our own little mental processes. But here's the thing that's the most intimidating and scary for me to think about. In a third world culture, with transcendence gone, religion is removed. But guess what takes its place? Politics. Religion is replaced by politics. All of that transcendent focus and angst and worship and devotion now moves inward to we just look at our own little worlds and we apply it there. Religion may decline, churches may be losing people who are willing to come, but the ideological intensities of their worship seeks meaning-making expressions. They will find messiahs, there will be antichrists, there will be a people that are yours, it will be us against the world, but now rather than being in sacred categories, it's the political so your political candidate is your Messiah. The opposite candidate is guess who? The Antichrist. It's good versus evil, but not on a cosmic scale. That makes our little country's politics with a couple hundred more kind of pale in comparison. Now it gets amped up as if it's heavenly stuff. And the other side is evil and broken. Religious Redemption morphs into secular redemption through politics. And the result is that political debates take on medical, metaphysical dimensions and are filled with existential angst like you'd expect at a revival meeting. That sounds exactly like what we've seen the last 10 years, especially. And every ad you're going to get from the midterm elections will use exactly that language. This is the end of America as we know it. Here it is. They're going to take away this and this and this and this. You can, you can just imagine like a preacher preaching the gospel message of hellfire and brimstone. So now politicians have that voice and will use that tone. And now I'll read verses 1 and 2 again. Paul says to the church, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Notice how the traits and habits of a third world culture 
do not and cannot match the life of a Christian. They just cannot. Again, it's not that we don't know what the text means, but hopefully we can see a bit more directly how it applies. So as, as, as I close our time in the Word this morning, let, let me answer the question, how can we respond? And I give you a few ideas. One is this, and this is a general one that I think as a church we need to spend more time focusing on. We should implement a ministry strategy for a third world culture. Like now you, are, you and I, if you are Christian, it, it is a, you believe in the transcendent, you believe in the authority of Scripture, you believe in God, you are by necessity a second world culture, yet you're living in a third world culture. So now you and I need to figure out, if we haven't yet even seen it, hopefully now we can, right? Like the thermostat's telling us the truth, the furnace is broken, the temperature's been changing, something needs to be repaired. It's not like my house where it can be fixed. This is the direction it's moving. Again, the moment you start to get a little panicky and scared, you just remember that there are a bunch of Christians in China that are hoping we figure this out soon enough. Here's the second thing. We need to make the kingdom great again. I, I borrowed and modified that line from someone you may know. We need to make the kingdom great again. Our politicians will want to make our national identity transcendent. That is the impulse. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be a humble patriot who loves their country. Absolutely, you should. It simply means that you must make sure you make the kingdom great again. Because in a third world culture, you will be catechized to make your nation great again. In the kingdom of God, you must make Christ and his kingdom great again. And again, I, I'm, I'm fighting against the cable news feeds that you get maybe one hour of church a week, maybe two, and then you get five hours of Tucker Carlson or whomever it is. They will be shepherding you more than you realize. We just need to be aware of that. Which is why, thirdly, we should be more critical of our preferred news sources and social media. Just, just, just be aware of it. We're, we're, they're not speaking on behalf of the authority of God and his kingdom. My son was following a power lifter. I'm sure all of you follow power lifters. And he put a meme up that he shared with me. And my son and I have talked about this conversation. And, and, and he sent me the meme. And here's what it said. The Omicron variant reportedly has mild symptoms like soreness and exhaustion. The same thing you'd feel after a hard day's work. No wonder liberals are terrified of it. And you laugh, and understandably so. And then read verse 2 again. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy, even in your memes, to all people. Fourth, we should use anger or fear as a litmus test that something is misaligned or off balance in us. The moment, the moment you feel that urge, like it is catastrophic. It's the end. You remember that Christ said, I will build my church 
and the gates of hell will not prevail. But you test, you, you, like, like a sensor in your furnace, you're sensing when the climate is impacting you, you might have to readjust and align to the Creator. Another is that we need to unite, you and I need to unite on theology. Christians need to unite on theology and make room for Christian liberty. I've been so impressed and thankful for our church's staff. There are very different opinions amongst our staff. I mean, almost kind of split. Oh, who, who one might would vote for in an election or wouldn't vote for? What about masks? What about vaccines? Like, it has not been this unanimous kind of thing. In fact, there's been people diametrically opposed. Yet in our conversations, there has been love, there's been charity, there's been listening, there's been healthy balancing of opinions that should model, hopefully, but reflect biblically what the Lord would want in the church. And maybe that's because we've gotten to know each other and we trust each other. There's a level of mutual respect and even submission to one another as we know that their perspective is worthy of hearing and even responding to. Can the church do that? Is there room for Christian liberty on this? I hope so. We must be comfortable with the different opinions and let them critique and challenge our own. I think we've got to work at that as a church. Again, otherwise, who do we look like? We look like the people who are part of a third world culture, who have no submission to Jesus Christ and his word. Again, remember verse 2. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Perfect courtesy. Sixth, we need to be convinced that Jesus has already won and the gospel is the most important thing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is already one? Christians do. The world might be on edge, like every empire that has come and gone. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And the gates of hell cannot touch the church. Whether that church, by the way, is in America... Or guess where? China. Last, we need to speak and act more like Jesus. Listen to Paul's words in another letter, Colossians 3. He, he, first, he, he, he describes God's people in, in, in three ways. He calls them God's chosen ones. He calls them holy. That word means they're set apart. Like they're supposed to be different. Like I'm plucking you out of this and I'm putting you right here. And then he calls them beloved. So they've been chosen set apart and loved by God. And then he gives this command. And after hearing those three qualifications, who wouldn't want to obey this loving father and king? He says, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. By the way, none of those words work well during political season for the world. But imagine what these words would look like to the world when lived out by the church. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. 
And if you have a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Boy, we've got, the good news is this, the third world culture isn't going anywhere. Disagreements over masks and vaccines aren't leaving at all. Elections are around the corner, and we have an opportunity not to just interpret verses 1 and 2, but actually to obey them. So hear them one more time as we close. Remind Hope Evangelical Free Church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And when we, maybe not yet matured enough for the next election, but down the road, when eventually we become a church that lives in the world but not of it, and people see how different we look, serving, even when we're disagreeing, not quarreling, gentle and courteous, and they will say, as I've said before, I've said it many times here by, by way of application, well, they will say, what is it about you? And you will say, it's not a what. It's a who. And he's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which ministers to your children. Help us to have eyes that see and ears that hear and to be formed Father, help us to obey verses 1 and 2 in Titus chapter 3. And Lord, out of all your commands in light of the last two years, that seems almost insurmountable. So begin your work in your people. Transform us that we may honor you in word and deed. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.